Shalom, and welcome to A Voice Calling in the Wilderness, a trumpet call, a voice crying out loud for God to those that would hear, so that they would run to him, that they might be warned. We are here sounding the alarm that our time here on earth is short and that we have no time to waste. Here we will expose the truth, teach the word, discuss the dangers, lies, and enemies we are surrounded by, and how to engage in the war that we are standing in the middle of. Today, we're blessed to be able to talk to General Superintendent of the Nazarene Church, Dr. David Busick. Welcome to the show. Thank you, J.D. It's great to be here. Well, you're here at our church this week for Faith Search. That's a a wonderful time of year, and and you uh, bring a great message, and uh, we sure look forward to having you. Um, but let, I'd like to start out with, for in case people don't know, um, what does a general superintendent do within the church? That's a good question. A lot, of, a lot of people aren't sure. Sometimes when you hear the word general, you think of a, a military term like at the top. Mm. Uh, but really, general for us has more to do with broad. It has to do with uh, the scope of the role. And so a general superintendent is someone within our denomination that uh, has jurisdiction not just over uh, local areas or districts or regions, but we have six general superintendents who, who are in jurisdiction around the world. So the mm-hmm. Church of the Nazarene currently has about 2.7 million members around the world in 164 countries of the world. And uh, the six of us preside over different parts of, of that uh, global mission. Currently, my area that I oversee is Eurasia, which includes not only all of Europe, but also India, Pakistan, uh, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, and in, in Russia. In the U.S., I currently have a chance to have jurisdiction in uh, the upper Midwest, and we do that. It's called the Olivet Region. So that's a little bit more about what my role entails. Very good. Cool. Well, that's great because I'm sure there's a lot of people that that see the name or the title and they really don't know what that means or or how it applies to them. Um, Speaking of the the local church and and us in general as believers, uh, what is the number one problem you see facing the church today? When you ask a question uh, having to do with that in the local church, I do think it really depends on which part of the world you're talking about. Very good. Um, Africa may have its its primary mm-hmm. concern. Uh, Asia may have another. I think since we're in the U.S., you may just be wondering particularly about North America. Well, I'd like to see maybe if you could tell us a couple different ones. And reason being is I think it's good for us in America to understand that the problems that we face aren't necessarily the same as in Africa or in Russia maybe. And, but, yeah, it would be great to start in America, but maybe if you could help us with a couple others an example – People could kind of get to that feeling and understanding. We do have uh, listeners in India, and we have listeners in Australia. So there are people that are seeing differences from what we hear and see that, than what they do as well. Yeah, it's that's the point. That's really the problem we all face is mm-hmm. is that the only context we know is our own, mm-hmm. and we can get become very myopic in the way we think about our worldview that this is the way the world works. And one of the great uh, joys and even revelations for me in being in this position for the last eight years is to see a much broader world with, uh, with just, just so many wonderful things and challenging things at the same time. I, you know, I think I could start, though, by just answering that question by, by saying that if, you, if I could narrow down what the, what the number one issue is facing the church today, it's, the, it's a lack of discipleship uh, in our churches. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you, if you fix the discipleship problem, and by that I mean what does it truly mean to be a consecrated, fully devoted follower of Christ uh, without inhibition, with, with, with absolute passion, what's the number one problem uh, it's it's a lack of discipleship. I also think once the discipleship question is answered, uh, it it fixes a lot of the other issues that the church is facing today, whether it be secularism, whether it be 
um, mm-hmm. materialism, uh, wh- whether it whether it just be self-centeredness. Discipleship is the antidote to to almost anything you can imagine that would face the church today. I think a lot of things that we've talked about on the podcast in the last year um, boil down to being systemic problems from a lack of discipleship, I think, especially in the Absolutely. American church. Right. You know, the American church has lost um, the even the knowledge that that's like a necessity and that's a part of the gospel, you know. And, I, and so I would agree with your, your assessment. I think that's right on. And I would say my experience over the years has been in churches, there is a bigger push on the initial salvation of people and, and then teaching, but not going to the step of becoming a disciple. Absolutely. The, the mission of the Church of the Nazarene is not to make, uh, con- to make conversions, mm-hmm. but it's to make Christ-like disciples in the nations. That's what the Great Commission is. It's what the Great Commission, I, I agree. So in your experience so far, what do you see as being the obstacle to that discipleship? Is it a lack of understanding how to do that? Or is it a fear of losing the people you got coming in, not getting the conversions because you're focused on going deeper? There, there has to be something that's stopping that from happening, I would think. Yeah, it's a that's a very good question. It's a it's a, I think it's a complex question, and mm-hmm. I wouldn't claim to know all the reasons. Right, uh, but I do believe that any gospel that is is not a Christ centered uh, biblical gospel is a gospel that wants to appeal to the self of a person mm-hmm. that wants to appeal to uh, it, what's in it for me. What uh, what's the path of least resistance? What's the? It, it's it's very much a consumer mindset, and and we're all consumers. I, I'm a consumer, so I, I'm not I'm not trying to say that consumerism um, doesn't in, in, inflict all of us to a certain degree. But I think whenever we even reach someone with the gospel of Jesus Christ and make it primarily about how your life can be better or how your problems can be fixed, uh, to that degree, we have already begun to short-circuit the discipleship process because the, the discipleship, that, as I see it in the Gospels and, and throughout church history, is, is a call to abandon self mm-hmm. and to, uh, to live a life of self-sacrifice by the power of the Holy Spirit, following Christ in His path of full surrender to the Father, and full surrender to uh, whatever path God chooses us to take doesn't always necessarily make us happy or right. doesn't make our life easier. Sometimes it makes our lives much more challenging, but also fulfilling. And, Absolutely. But when, when the gospel is primarily about someone's self-fulfillment, to that point, discipleship has already begun to take something uh, less than what I think the, the Bible is calling us to. Yeah, we just recorded a show on compromise and, and not compromising with the world in, in, in that very way um, and watering down the gospel or making it fit what makes us comfortable. And and I totally agree with you that we have to be, I think we have to be very cautious about the goals of salvation, the goals of pursue, pursuing others for salvation's sake. And just like I think you're saying is, it's more to do with we want to create disciples, and through that process, these are the things that you will experience, and they're all those things that we want, right? We all mm-hmm. want the peace. We all want the clarity. We want discernment. We want our world to not be as confusing and oppressive to us as it is today before we get there, but that's a part of the process, not the end state, Right. Well said. I think there's a little bit of a bait and switch uh, when when you are calling people from a consumeristic mindset and you bring them in and say this is going to you know fulfill all all of your dreams. Oh, oh yes, but we want you to take up your cross, or or Christ wants you to take up your cross and follow Him in that process. 
And people are saying, wait a minute, I thought this was about the path of self-fulfillment, not the path of self-surrender. <laughs> and, and yet when someone uh, comes to the point of full surrender to Christ and His way, we do find peace. We mm-hmm. do find uh, meaning. We do find uh, purpose. But, but it's not the path that we thought it was going to be. That's absolutely right. Because what I have found is that you you can pursue God as, in, in your own way. To, and a lot of times it is to be happier, to, you know, not, not feel the guilt or burden of a past life. But it's not until you surrender that you get what he has for you, which may not look like anything that you went there to get, but it's far superior. But you don't know that until you do it. And and I see that with people all the time that, that I work with, that when they finally just decide that they're going to surrender and give it all to Christ, then on the other side of that, they're completely different people. And their desires that they went in with may not have got satisfied, but they have new desires that are way more than what they wanted. And that's the part I find that if you can get people to understand that. Yes. That he's going to change what you want even, but you're going to be glad that he did. <laughs> There's, there is no path uh, to transformation that doesn't call us out of our own comfort zone. And so... Uh, you could say that that uh, Christ will not comfort anyone into transformation. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, so if you're looking for uh, a life without conflict or a life without, you know, that's, that's completely safe, Christianity isn't for you. That's right. Because uh, by the grace of God, He will discomfort us so that we can experience uh, the holiness that he's calling us to. And, but the deception is that, that, that mo- whatever experience we go through, and, and that's how the Holy Spirit works in our lives, is through experiences. Mm-hmm. And that, that doesn't mean that he, that he is orchestrating every experience we have, but um, as if it was some kind of a predestined way of looking at life, like everything is God's will. I don't believe that's true. I think I think we all have um, choices to make, but as we make those choices with a more and more of a surrendered, uh, all in. I'm all in to this, and uh, we we find that he the journey takes us through some interesting paths, and some of those paths feel very unsafe, and sometimes they feel uh, they often feel very where where we just say, Lord, if you don't intervene, I'm in big trouble mm-hmm. here. But you you learn to move away from self sufficiency into a complete dependence on God, and and finally that second half that that you know the first half of the gospel is that it is about conversion, it it is about forgiveness, it is about integrating into the body of Christ, but then there's there's love of God, there's love of neighbor that, that begins to move toward the second half of what I think the gospel is, which is the journey toward uh, holiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I do love the fact, though, that Christianity isn't deceptive when it starts out saying, if you follow me, you will have trouble. I mean, it's up front. So anybody, I think, that believes that I'm a Christian, therefore I should have a good life and good health and good money and and happiness and comfort, nowhere in the Bible does God say that you're going to be comfortable. I mean, I don't remember that in any of the verses. (laughs) It it actually says exactly the opposite. You're going to have trouble. The world will hate you because it hated me first. I I don't know how much more obvious you have to be. (laughs) So... It is wonderful that it's this honest, but at the same time, it feels like for many years in my life, I've seen churches that have soft-pedaled that or kind of hid that away, and we we preach and teach the love and the, you know, the peace and the grace and the mercy, and then we stop. We don't talk about, in, in even you know, new believers, 
when you bring them in and they and they first believe, if it, it's really unfair to not go those next steps and and quickly move them into discipleship because they're going to come under attack immediately. And then they're going to have a lot of hard questions about, why am I going through this? Why am I, you know, people don't like to talk about spiritual warfare, but if you convert somebody and bring them to Christ and they accept Christ, immediately they're going to come under attack because this is not where the devil wants them to be. So I I totally get what you're saying. And and man, I think we really got to work hard on getting these discipleships programs built to get people more armed for the war. Because as we speak all the time, we're in a war. So I'd like to pose a question while we're still on the mm-hmm. region of America and the American church. And um, so when you were talking earlier about, you know, uh, the difference between, you know, sacrifice versus self, you know, and, and how the gospel is approached, you know, if it's if it starts going down the road of self, you know, it becomes, you know, uh, an error um, I'll put it nicely then by just saying that. Uh, but it, it reminded me of, you know, the culture in America as a whole. You know, just uh, some, what, 50, 60 years ago, JFK stood up and said, ask not uh, what your country can do for you. Do Ask what you can do for your country. And I think the gospel is very much like that. Ask not what God can do for you. Ask what you can do for God. You know, Christ said, you know, put first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Um, So we are in a culture now where we no longer talk about sacrifice. We talk about, you know, what we should be getting from the government or whatever. The gain. Is is the church just followed suit with the cultural change? Um, is Is the church been influenced? Is that juxtaposition something that happened with the culture or because of the culture or did the culture happen because of the church um, making poor decisions? Uh. Well, I, so I don't know which comes first in that, whether it's culture affecting church or church, the chicken or the egg. uh, egg. It's, it's a very good question though. Um, And I, I think I would be, I would just be, it'd be conjecture because I didn't, you know, I didn't live in the 40s or, you know, I didn't know what life was like in the 1800s in, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of cultural pressures and, or, or even is the culture worse today than it was 50 years ago uh, and was 50 years ago, you know, worse than it was yeah, every generation before. believes that, right? right? Every generation. So, but, but here's, Here's the thing that doesn't change ever with culture, and that's human nature. Mm. Human nature, uh, what, what I believe the biblical worldview says, has remained unchanged since uh, the beginning of creation, and that is uh, since the fall, all of us have been turned in on ourselves. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the focus of, of a sinful nature is, is to be turned in on, on me instead of turn toward God and turn, turn toward others. Right. So um, culturally, are we in a new day? Um, are, are the pressures different? Is there greater pressure in some temptations than there were 50 years ago, let's say, when you know, JFK was making that call that what seemed to resonate with Americans at the time? Right. Uh, yes, I think we are in a different day. Uh, with a different focus, uh, a lot more suspicion toward authority, mm. uh, a lot more uh, suspicion toward anything that feels institutionalized, a lot more focus on on uh, uh, the individual person instead of the communal person. I think that's been a been mm. a big change in American culture. In that we've always kind of had the the independence, uh, you know, the pioneer, um, be your own person that's, that's existed there. That's kind of, I think, built into the nature of being an American. Right. Right. But, but I do think there's, there's far less of a communal dependence that, that we have toward, uh, the larger whole than we've had before and more of a focus on, on, uh, on trying to think about what's, 
you know, what are, what are my rights? What's, what's good for me and what's good for me may not be what's good for you, but you know, I have the right to choose, to choose that. Right. Yeah. I mean, we've seen that, um, you know, just not so much in a spiritual sense, but you, you look at communities, you know, um, 40, 50 years ago, nobody had fences. Um, everybody, you know, you've said it on the show before, yeah. everybody was on the front porch, you know, kids playing in the streets, you know, and now it's like everybody's got a fence. You never see um, people out in the front of the house. Everybody's in the backyard, you know. Um, and we've become so isolated and, and don't want to be seen or don't want to see, you know, those around us. Um, so, I, I mean, I think the fruit of what we've seen reflects what you just said. Yeah, and what you were talking about, it made me think about, I I am in my 50s, and I remember how much influence churches had in communities, whether it be with the hospitals or, you know, there was just dozens of ways that the churches had really good influence in the community, and but today it doesn't seem to be that the church has very much influence in our society, and I wonder if it has goes back to this fear or distrust of institution. Um, hmm. it, it seems like we've transferred all of that trust to government sources or large corporations rather than the church, which for me, I find a little bit sad because your local church body is your society. It's your people, right? It's your neighbor. It's, it's your brother, your sister, your uncle. And hmm. why wouldn't we trust ourselves? And, and so that raises a lot more questions for me about does the self-autonomy give us some level of understanding that my neighbor is out for himself, so does he really have my best interest at heart? Should I trust him or should I trust the government who says they're for everyone? Um, That raises a lot of questions in that. And I think it goes back to what you were just saying before about discipleship. I think if you can get the discipleship out there and people can start to see and hear truly what the gospel is about from their neighbor— and because their neighbor's no longer just going to church and consuming, but now they're a disciple of Christ, then maybe we can buy back that trust. Maybe we can earn it back. Yeah, it's a, that's a really good point. I I do believe that if the church abdicates its role in a society by either being uh, self-insulated mm-hmm. or... Uh, being being overly condemning on the other side, which is basically to say, we've had that. If you know, if you don't agree with us, you're, you know, you're all condemned to hell. Right, there's right. there's a lot of uh, aspects to that, but you know, G- Jesus Jesus gave us an, an antidote to the the cultural tension, and he said he said, I want you to be in the world. Mm-hmm. But I don't want you to be of the world. And when you, when you really look at what he said, the opposite of that, you could go two ways. You could either be in the world and of the world so that the church uh, doesn't really look any different in many ways. It has, it has a few different outer external things, but, but when it comes right down to it, the church doesn't look that different than the rest of the culture, that the church is still very much in a self-serving manner and just as many uh, families breaking up and just as much addiction in the church and so forth. So, or, or a church that has basically just become um, j- just fitting. It, it fits so much into the culture that it doesn't anymore look distinctive. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is uh, to be uh, not in the world, and and that would be to be removed from the role of uh, of making a difference there. Salt and light. Mm-hmm. Uh, salt is is something that purifies. Uh, light is something that you know pierces darkness. So both of those require the church to be both in the world but not of the world. Uh, and I think, I think the church, when we've been at our worst, it's been when we've tried to be on one side of, that, of the other, whether we've been, not, uh, we've not been of the world but we've not been in the world, so right. we seem like we're distant. 
or or we've been so accommodating that that the church no longer looks different. And either way, people outside the church, I think, instinctively know that doesn't feel like church to me. And so there creates a lot of mistrust. Mm-hmm. I think we have good examples um, of, if you want to call them experiments, of those two those two scenarios because you're you're just talking history of the church in a sense but i mean if we look in america we have you know the amish removed themselves from the world and that's not to say that they lost all influence on people that might have been around them um but in today's culture you look at that and nobody who's in the world who's not a christian looks at that and says i want that you yeah, know. I don't know. I don't know uh, any people that I've met in my life that's ever been saved by an Amish. Right, um, and then going to the first point you made, which is what we face today in America, that um, you know a lot of churches don't look any different than a nightclub somebody went to on a on a Saturday night, mm-hmm. and so then how are we different? Like how are we showing that we are not the same? You know that that what we profess and what we teach is actually different than what the rest of the world does, which is what we're supposed to represent. Um, and so, you know, I, I I think there's the, I call it the relevancy, you know, experiment. You know, it started out where the whole argument of why churches went down that road was we need to be relevant so that we can reach people. And I think um, we're coming to the end of seeing that fail. Uh, you know, it, mm-hmm. not in the sense that churches don't have, you know, thousands of members because you have megachurches that follow that model, but it's hard to see in some of those where there's actually power, you know. Uh, Go back to uh, Paul talking about, you know, having the form of godliness but lacking the power, you know, and and that's, that's you know, something that was a warning of the end times. You know, but yeah, I was just going to say you're spe- you're reading right out of the book of Revelation with what you're saying too. You're describing the churches that's described there, um, and and you're right. But again, with this, the the idea of the discipleship, I think that you are so dead on with where our root issue is. I used to go to a, a mega church, five thousand people, seven, eight thousand people on a weekend. I knew no disciples from there. I mean, we had, I tried to work with a group and we had a little outreach and they snuffed it because we were bringing in people that they didn't want in the church. And and we know it was, it was a celebrate recovery program. And we, we were, we started in September and in March, they closed it down because there were too many complaints that those kind of people were coming onto campus. I'm going, those are the kind of people that Christ said to bring. Mm Yeah, you know, yeah. What it was, it was disturbing their country club is what it felt like to me. Yeah, and um, and I, I was personally it was very hurtful to me because I thought, what pastor would ever kick people off his campus? They were coming there for help. Yeah. It, it, it's not a museum of saints; it's a hospital for sinners. Yeah, and I, I, I so that was the last time I went. I mean, I immediately found a new church because I'm like, this is not Christ-like at all. Yeah, I I think um, I think you can have either uh, isolationism or uh, exclusion or a lack of engagement in small churches, large churches, mega churches. I think I think again, human nature has the capacity to do all of those things, regardless mm-hmm. of the size of the church. Yeah. Uh, but I I I've started to look more less on church growth as the measure, the right measure f- for a church, and I've started to ask myself more the question of church health. Mm. Church health, you can be a healthy church and be ten, or you can be a healthy church and and be twenty thousand. Um, but the measures of health in a church don't always match the measure of statistics or the measure of uh, how fast are you growing, and how many people do you have? I'm I'm less interested in how many people a church has, but as I am interested in what kinds of people are these? What are these people like? Right. Oh yeah, totally. And agree. and if uh, and and of course every church has a variety of what these people are like. But but the if the culture of the church is moving toward calling people. 
into a deeper walk with Him, with Christ, and into a life of discipleship, I think overall the health of that church is is stronger than a church that may just be growing. Yeah, and and one of the uh, obvious ones for me is is when you look at a church, does its divorce rate look the same as the world? Are you having the same problems in families? Are you having student dropout rates? Are they high? Are the kids engaged, you know, in the in the church? Or are they having troubles at school the same as everybody else? Are they getting suspensions? Are they getting in trouble? Are their grades failing? What are the kids being taught? Are they taught responsibility? Are they taught, you know, the lessons you want them to learn? Or are they seeing mom and dad fight and argue all the time? Do we have alcoholism in the family? You know, I saw a statistic that 70% of men in churches view pornography. What's that look like within that church body? Have we cut the pornography rate down? I mean, mm-hmm. those are the things that are important in the church to me, and I'm with you. I don't think it matters if it's 20, 50 people or 3,000 people on a Sunday. What is How healthy are those people that are sitting in those pews? Are they getting out of the message what they need? Are they getting the discipleship to help them to go overcome their flesh and the world that they don't have the same problems as their neighbor who's secular? Because if you're having the same problems as the neighborhood that you live in that is all secular, you're the only Christian there, but you have the same problems they do, are you really getting anything out of your church? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the real question. The Bible says that um, you will know them by their fruit. And I don't think that um, bodies and butts and seats is necessarily fruit. You know, fruit can be a variety of different things. And, uh, you know, it's whether it's health or, you know, influence or or what have you it doesn't i don't think it's something that can be accurately measured in all cases um or is something that we should measure because it's like we have um pastor steve on staff and Mm -hmm. you know he's been teaching us um, for a while now that you know we're not responsible for the fruit God's responsible for the fruit. We're responsible for, you know, taking care of our, you know, our roots and our foundation and making sure that we're healthy and God will then provide the fruit, you know, as as it's time for us to actually, you know, reap a harvest. And I think a church has to ask itself, if it's not healthy inside the church, are you really going to get the fruit that you should? Are you going to get new believers the way you should if you're not healthy? I don't think God's going to send more people here if you're already rotten. Yeah, I think, you know, it does raise the question. Again, it's a matter of uh, the balance of you certainly, to me, the, the target that we're looking at as far as this, if you want to say what's the end goal of mm-hmm. discipleship, the end goal is, the the simplest way I can say it is is Christ-likeness. We 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 want to look like Christ, we want to think like Christ, we want to be like Christ in the world, not through our own effort, uh, but but by by his grace. Um, however, on the other side, you you do if you if you're going to be a church that considers outreach a part of what you do, then you're going to have people in that congregation that are all over the map. Right. You're going to have right. people whose lives are completely chaotic and broken and messed up and dysfunctional. And but you can't be a whole church of that. Right. You know, you That's exactly you right. You have to have mature you have to see maturity happening. And so you have to have a depth of maturity somewhere mm-hmm. that is that is helping people to get to where God wants them to go. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, I I do believe that a spirit-filled church uh, should have the balance of both mature believers who who become examples for those who are new to the faith. I yes. don't expect the person new to the faith to to have the same spiritual discernment of someone who's been a believer for 25 years. On the other hand, I I have real concerns of somebody who's been a believer for 25 years in their life doesn't look any different than it did 25 years oh, ago. Right, amen right. to that. And, you know, I, I get to work with people of all age groups and the people that have been believers actually longer than I've been alive. And, and some of them, I've actually heard them say, I, I just never hear from God. I don't know what he wants from me. And I'm going, 
How do you get there after being a believer for 45, 50 years? How do you still say that? And, and so I don't know if it's, it's just not a teaching that they're, that they're getting that they needed or, or what the lack is, but we've we got to do better somehow to not let that happen, I think. Um, I mean, everybody's responsible for their own um, choices and their choices, their decisions that they make come from the heart. Um, but it is, I believe, the leadership of churches, um, the responsibility to actually teach and model um, the practices and, and the habits that you you might develop, you know, that that show, you know, you uh, attempting to f- become more Christ-like, you know, not that it's a, a system of rules and you do X, Y, and Z and you'll get here. It's, you know, it's like this is routine that I have developed so that I can, you know, um, practice getting close to God. And, and at some point it becomes more than that, you know, but when you don't see it modeled, when, when it's not, you know, uh, I heard, I heard a phrase like some of these things, like when you're a child, you know, like you, you're, you've, you know, te- learn things from your parents, it's more caught than taught. Right. So, right. you know, in, in the church, I think it's the same way. It's more caught than taught. What what you experience or see of going on around you, you're you're gonna like pick up on, um, and you know no matter how much somebody drills into your head, like this is what you're supposed to do, you know. Uh, I I think there needs to be both, um, but if you don't have that influence around yes. you, um, then it's a, I think it's a very rare person that God, the the whose heart is open for God to you know teach them by themselves. I think this path to holiness is a process that we all go through. But if we don't have somebody that help us sometimes go through the investigative stage of what's in my life maybe that's hindering me or keeping me from going to the next level or the next, you know, the next part of my journey, you need help, I think, understanding that and and digging into the root causes and and maybe some advice on, hey, maybe you should try this different or do this, or maybe you need to put this person out of your life even, right? Because mm-hmm. we right. have bad influences in our life that can hold people back. And and people are really good at, at developing mindsets for us out through words and deeds, and we just compromise and go along with it because, you know, that person's been part of our life and I can't let them go. Well, sometimes that's the answer. But if you don't have somebody sit down with you and investigate where you're at and where you're trying to go and how, you know, what are some of the blockages maybe for that, then maybe you just, you get stuck for 10, 20 years because you've never had somebody help you through that. We've lost a lot of the model of what John Wesley taught, you know, like what what you're saying, the the accountability system yes. and and you know the people you can connect with and learn to trust you know with with you know your deepest problems you know and and your spiritual life um you know that was some that's what he taught and that's what the holiness movement was kind of you know birthed mm-hmm. out of you know and i think as a as a whole at least in america we've kind of lost that dynamic of having that uh you know in some instances you know we try to get it back you know um, through different programs mm-hmm. and celebrate recovery being one of them, um, you know, and and I think the healthier churches probably have some sort of system there, and I think that's a that's a strong, you know, part of discipleship. I think he had a lot of that right, you know. Yeah, yeah, I I think both of you are really spot on in that. When you're talking about accountability in your Christian walk, and and knowing that. We need each other mm-hmm. to spur each other on. Uh, we have an amazing capacity for self-deception, and it's easy for us to have blind spots. And you need trusted people in your life to say, who love you enough to speak truth, uh, but also who won't let you go. And we need mentors. Mm-hmm. We need we need people that we look up to in the faith. Oh, ultimately, Christ is our is our uh, the one we follow, but those people who model that. But one of the best, one of the best books that I've read on discipleship in, in recent days is called After You Believe. Uh, and it's a, it's a book about what happens to someone when they become a Christian and how do they end up in, in this, this uh, 
this place of life we call holiness. And is it is it just consecration? Is it just effort? Is it is it just hopefulness? Like time over time will just evolve into a Christ-like person, or is there something else that that has to happen? And uh, that one of the stories he gives uh, in this in the beginning of this book, which I just think is an incredible story, he retells the story of Sully, the airline cap- captain, oh, wow. who. Who ended up? He, he he goes up in a in a airplane, and in, in a matter of two minutes, he finds him. They hit a a flock of geese. Right, right. And you remember that story? Yeah, yeah. yeah. that was the Hudson River. Hudson, the, River. The Hudson yeah. River. That's it. <laughs> and Sully has, along with his co-pilot, a matter of like two minutes to make a decision before they crash. They're over the metro New York area. There's no airports nearby. There's there's thousands of people there. There's hundreds of people in the plane. And and uh, what N.T. Wright, who, who writes this book, After You Believe, says is he has to make like 15 decisions in a matter of two minutes. He has to turn this off. He has to turn this on. He has to get the plane even. He has to, you know, it's just... Nobody has a chance to look into the the operations manual. Nobody has a chance to make a phone call. Right. They Sully has to do almost. Uh, he he has to make decisions that he's made a thousand times before. He has to do almost without thinking. Yep. Uh, what what before he had to do uh, by by intentional effort. So so he's it. Some someone says, does this person. Does this person um, are they just reacting or or are they actually uh, making intentional you know decisions? Whatever character is, character is is that you've done something over and over and over again a thousand times, so that in the one thousand and one time when the pressure's on, and you can't even you don't have time to go back and reflect or or ask a friend what should I do. What you do in that one thousand and one time uh, was was a was a result of the one thousand times that you put effort and that you put you know precision into it. That's what character is, and I think I think Christians who want to follow Jesus there there are things that we have to do. Mm-hmm. There are practices that we have to engage in. You could have even been a pilot in that plane. You know, if you're a rookie pilot, you probably still would have crashed that plane, even though you understood aerodynamics. Right. You you didn't have the one thousand experiences that Sully had. The instinct, and I and I think sometimes that's the missing piece of discipleship is that we think it's hocus pocus. We think it's going to snap our fingers and people are going to you know they went down they prayed or they prayed in their you know at the altar whatever it was. Now they should be like Jesus. Well. They have the fruit, buds, the blossoms are there. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. But there's still weeds you got to get out. <laughs> but there's a lot of stuff going on, right? Yep. So the blossoms are there, but there's not fruit. Nope. You have to cultivate that garden right. to get the fruit. Right. And that includes the disciplines. That mm-hmm. includes uh, the accountability. Mm-hmm. I think that is part of the missing piece of discipleship. I think we we expect people to become like Jesus without without putting in those intentional practices that we know are going to shape us into Christ likeness. And and you know, I'd say one more thing of what I heard someone say. I think it was Dallas Willard who said the gospel is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. We never we don't earn the grace of God right. because we work hard, but the gospel also doesn't say that there's no effort on our part. No. Right. And I think this kind of this passive just change me Jesus without without some kind of practiced effort that says here's practices that I know are going to make me like Christ. Let me let me give you one more quick example. Um, we talk about you know, people want to golf like Tiger Woods or Jordan Spieth or something like that. And we love the way Tiger looks. We love the way he spins his club. We love his clothes. You know, we, we love his, his short game. But what we don't see is the thousands of hours that Tiger Woods put into the practice of being the golfer that he is. Right. 
we don't know that he was been doing this since he was two years old. Right. We want to play like Tiger, but we don't want to invest in the work to be like Tiger. <laughs> That's absolutely right. And that I would say that that is somewhat maybe a current obstacle for discipleship in the American church is people are so busy in their life and in the world that you're in order for them to truly become disciples, we have to teach them that there's things you have to give up. Um, you, you may not be able to, you know, watch 40 hours of TV a week. Um, you may ha- not be able to go to all the sporting events that you want to go to or, or you're going to have to sacrifice some time here in order for you to do the things over here that you need to to be a disciple. Um, you know, we see that all the time in different ministries where people are too busy to be involved in the ministry. They want to, they'll sign up for it, but when it comes to engaging, they're just too busy because, you know, we got, the kids got ballet and soccer and karate and, you know, all these other things. We can't figure out which day of the week that we can be there to do that. So somewhere there has to be a give, right? You have to decide, am I going to be engaged in the things of the world and of my busy life? Or am I going to be engaged in discipleship? It really isn't going to work to try to do both because there isn't that we only give it so many hours a day. And so that is something I think that we'll have to work on with people to get them to understand you have to pull back out of the world a little bit to do this. Well, I think we should also um, start communicating. Again, you can correct me if I'm wrong on my theology here. Um, you know, but one thing that we don't really talk about in the American church anymore is um, what salvation actually is. Christ said, go out and make disciples of all the nations. He didn't say, go out and make converts. Yes, someone gets saved on their deathbed. They're going to heaven. They're going to go be with Jesus, right? There is no time for them to have a work of discipleship. But if you're still alive and you're not actively trying to be a disciple of Christ, you may want to question whether you have salvation. Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Going to your point of, we have to work towards be, being disciples of Christ. It's, it's about getting to that place. Um, and wherever we are on the journey when God takes us, takes us home, if we're, if we're working towards that, then he will, you know, welcome us in, you know, into the kingdom in, in his arms, right? Um, but there will be many, you know, on the day of judgment that said, we did this, this, and this in your name. And Christ will look at them and say, I never knew you, you know, and they will have possibly spent their entire lives believing they're Christians, you know, believing that they were, you know, doing what they were supposed to be doing. And we don't, we just, we talk salvation. We say, yes, the grace of God, it is all grace. I'm not saying it's works at all. It's all grace. But we are responsible for doing what Christ told us to do and pursuing him and becoming his to become more and more like him. Heaven isn't going to be filled with a bunch of people who, you know, just accepted Christ. Heaven's going to be filled with people who look like Christ because he he has conformed them, you know, to be like him, you know, because that's what he wanted. And that's, you know, he wanted, you know, a a people, you know, humanity that was um, capable of divinely loving each other because that's, who he is. He divinely loves, you know, and so, uh, you know, I just, yeah. at this point, I feel like I'm starting to rant a little bit, so I'll... <laughs> well, I think, Michael, your it's point's well taken. Yeah, and because now what you've done is you've moved us away from uh, someone who wants to be a righteous person to someone who's in relationship with Jesus. Oh, right. to that. And yeah. I, I think, I think if, if your goal is to be a moral person... It's going to feel like work. Mm-hmm. If your goal is to be, hey, I'm going to be a righteous person, that's not even the best motive. I think, I think if we if we see this less as religion and more as relationship, absolutely. All of a sudden, all of those time questions that you talked about, they, they fall into place yep. because relationships are partly about time or partly about investment. There's no relationship on earth that's a good relationship that I don't have to work at. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this relationship with Christ is such that 
that if, if my if my main goal is is to be a loving person or or to be a um, joyful person, then that's even shy of that's that's awry of the goal. Right. My goal is to know Christ and to believe that as I as I know him deeper, that as hit, the, that relationship will begin to conform me more and more into a loving and joyful person. Not because love and joy and all those other things were my goal, but because my goal was relationship with Jesus. And, and I think one of the things I'm going to go back to again and again is one of my life verses is trust in the Lord with all your heart. Um, and, and then it goes on to say, um, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. That's, that phrase, acknowledge him, is actually a Hebrew word that means to know someone intimately. Mm-hmm. Yada, Adam, Yada, Eve, and Cain was born. It's, it's a, yada is the Hebrew word for the highest level of intimacy that you can know with a human being. It's interesting that biblical writers use that as a way to describe what your goal in knowing God's will is. The, the, the purpose of of being in relationship with God isn't to know His will, it's to know Him intimately. And as you know Him intimately, all of a sudden, His ways, His ways of thinking, His His guidance becomes clear to us. My goal is not to know the will of God. My goal is to know God deeply right? so that these other things begin to fall into place. And that's exactly what the entire—if you look at the entire Bible, Bible is the gospel. You know, it's God's story— um, the whole thing is, you know, filled with, uh, you know, uh, metaphor and and practices, you know, um, that were all, you know, around this idea of, you know, the practice of the ancient Jewish wedding. You know, God, Christ calling, you know, his church his bride, you know, it's all about that, you know, a wedding, the goal isn't to, to get together. The goal is to, you know, be intimate and to bear fruit. You know, and and I mean, every you can go through the whole story, and everything predicates from Christ cutting the new covenant and dying on the cross. Like all of that is what God laid out as a wedding. You know, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those are all metaphors of relationship, mm-hmm. right? And we saw we saw men throughout even the Old Testament that really got it before Jesus came on earth. As a man, we saw men like Noah and Daniel that got that relationship part. Right. They understood they needed that relationship with God. And then we see what God did in their life because of the relationship. Right. I mean, we have beautiful examples of that all throughout history of that relationship and its level of importance. And and then Christ come on the scene and he gave us ability to have even a more close relationship with him as a human being. And understanding that he went through the same things that we did as people. Yes. So, but all of history is filled with that, in my opinion, with men that got it. Right. Really, really got it. And and you're, and I think it's exactly what we talk about all the time on the show is how important that relationship is. It, that's the only thing that matters because everything comes from that relationship. Everything else is a byproduct: righteousness, holiness. Fruits yeah. of the Spirit, that's all a byproduct of obediently following Christ. Yeah. But like you were saying on about the relationship portion, it, it's like when you're married, over a period of time, the deeper that marriage relationship becomes, the, the more intimate and the closer you've been with your spouse, you start taking on their characteristics. And that's really what this, in my opinion, is about is the deeper you get in your relationship with Christ, the more you are becoming like him. And that changes everything about who you are, the way you think, the way you prioritize, the, your goals, your ambitions all change. And people can see that. And I think that's exactly what God was talking about is people should see me through you, but you never get there if you don't get that relationship. And I've heard over the years so many people that didn't that were afraid of Christianity because of all the rules. You can't do this and you can't do that and you can't. And my first thing to him is, no, it's not a can't do list. 
I said, when you love Jesus and, and you make that part of your life and who you are, you no longer want to do those things. It's a change in your attitude. It's not that you can't do them. You won't. It's a I'm not going to do list because I don't want to. And that all has to do with that relationship. And it goes back all the way back to what we were talking about early on in the show about getting rid of that self first. Because if you walk into a marriage with self first, it's not going to be a good marriage. It's not going to be a good relationship. If my if I have a friend and I call my best friend, but I'm all about me and I want him to serve me, we're not going to have a very good relationship either. But if you have the right relationship and it's a, and an exchange relationship and it's one where you are intimate with that person and, and especially with Christ, then all of those things fall into place and you don't have the spoils that come from a bad relationship. All you get out of it is the change for good. And those things that are destructive and, and harmful to you and others around you fall by the wayside because they're not part of who you are anymore. And I believe that's what he's called us to look at. Yes, 100%. And I think when your motives... You know, I heard somebody say once that I think they're right, that, that the deepest work of the Spirit of, in your life is at the level of your attitudes and I, it, in, in the, even the unknown attitudes, the, the motivations of your heart. That is a very deep work of the Spirit, but, but it's, it's a work that goes deep enough that the time question doesn't mean, when can I fit in Jesus into my schedule? <laughs> It's like now my my whole life is now centered in Christ. And so what I do at the baseball game, what I do at the ballet practice, what I what I do when I'm serving the poor, what I do when I'm at my job, it's no longer God first, you know, work sec or family second, you know, that that kind of that hierarchy. Now it's Christ central in everything. Uh, so that everything I do is a sacrifice of love. To God. And, and that begins to say just not, of course, you need private time. Of course, you need prayer, uh, you know, private prayer and, and devotions and meditation mm-hmm. and all of that. But now I'm not, I'm saying, okay, it's, it's 4.30 in the afternoon and I'm in my drive home. What does it look like for me to be in relationship with Christ in this moment, yep. just like it was at 6 a.m. when I was having my devotional time? My relationship with Christ is ongoing. And so I'm, I'm no longer kind of uh, separating everything and dichotomizing my life. But now the holistic Christian life is, this is 24-7. And that's a great teaching for people, I think, because right now I see a lot of people that partition their life. I have this time, I have God time, I have this time, I have God time. No, 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 it should be God time. And in that God time, I'm doing these things, right? So that... Um, Great point. I, th- there's nothing wrong with a Christian having, having entertainment time, you know, like if I want to watch a TV show or, you know, I want to go golfing or whatever. But now the question is, what does it look like for me to be in right relationship with Christ with my entertainment? What does it look like for me to be right with my, you know, my hobbies? Mm-hmm. So that, so that nothing takes lordship over Christ. The Christ is at the center of it all. And, and, and my practices, those things that I do to be conformed into the likeness of Christ, they begin to shape, you know, so that I'm no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but I'm being transformed by the renewing. Notice it doesn't say by the renewing of my emotions. It's, it's a renewing of my mind, the way I think, the way I... You know, the, the deepest levels of a person. Absolutely right. Totally agree with that. I mean, and I love to hear it. And I, I hope that we can build upon that and, and do create some good discipleship programs. I, I think we have to start out with understanding where people are at, though, and understanding that they haven't got that Christ mindset where God's with them every step of every day. So we have to learn to pull them out of some things so they can start to see that, I think. Because it's very hard for people to see what, like you said, we can self-deceive. Oh, I'm really living the Christian life. Are you? 
it's funny that you brought up the golf thing. I, I used to golf with a guy years ago. He would say a very short prayer every time he teed off. And he had the worst slice I've ever seen. And every time, I promise you, when that ball went over into the woods, he was not saying things that come <laughs> out of a spiritual. I mean, I'm like, how do you pray and then go over there and cuss like that? Like, you got, there's something twisted there. But in your mind, you're deceived that I'm doing the right thing here, you know? So we have to understand where people are at, I think, and we have to have a, a program that's good enough to help bridge that gap and, and pull them out and let them see truthfully where they're at and where where we need to go and what it looks like. But I, I'd be yeah. excited to see that. Yeah. And I think just in summary that maybe maybe instead of churches looking at discipleship programs so that it's a program that's aligned with we have kids' ministries, we yeah. have youth, we have uh, men's ministries, so on. What if discipleship was not a program? A process. What if, what if it was, yeah, we process, what if it was, this is everything we do and right. offer as a church. It's all about discipleship. Discipleship right. isn't the program, it is the paradigm. Right. So that maybe asking ourselves in addition to what are we doing to make disciples, what what did these programs of the church do to to help make disciples if that's the goal what is what is this men's ministries doing to affect the discipleship paradigm what is the way we the way we disciple children is you know are we including not just kids but are we including families are we you know so so you start to evaluate everything we do from worship to uh, Sunday school to small groups to to anything the craft fair mm-hmm. you know the outreach of the church all of that is molding disciples so you could really be you're looking at balance you're looking at you know what's what's this shaping in them mm-hmm. if you have if you have ten if you have ten Bible studies and somebody goes to nine Bible studies and so they're spending nine hours of their week in nine Bible studies. Yeah, it's great that they're getting Bible teaching, but is that forming them into a disciple of, of Jesus? And, you know, what's missing in that? I would say to a person like that, and, you know, I'm being facetious there, but I would say to a person going to nine hours of Bible study, you know what? Don't come to as many Bible studies. We we need you serving in the community, too. There you go. Right. You know, we we need you doing something that is putting you out of your comfort zone. So I'm going to ask you to come to two hours of Bible study, and I'm going to ask you to, to be sure that, that you're being shaped by other things too. So, Yeah, I would love to see people applying what they're learning. You know, um, take, take the messages that you're being taught and, and somehow apply that, whether it be in the community or serving within the church body. You know, there's so many ways that we could take those things. And one... By practice, like we've been saying all along here, by practice, you become a master, right? And, you know, I, I was in the military, and that's one of the things the military does very well. They make you do things a million times. Because when it does come to a combat situation, you don't get to think. You just act. And if you haven't done it a million times, you might act wrong. And people then die. Well, this is just as important, more so, because we want to get so practiced at what we do when we act, people don't go to hell because we now have all the tools to make that a possibility for them, that we can show them where their salvation is and we can rescue them from their ultimate destiny. And, and Great point. So I would love to see people starting to apply what they're being taught. Well, I think that's that's coming full circle in, in terms of coming in, being discipled, and then transitioning to becoming a discipler. You know, um, it, the Bible says that, you know, we'll not that it doesn't say that our salvation is based on works, but it does say we will be judged by our works. And it also is very clear that there will be rewards in heaven because of our works. So when we serve Christ, when we do things to help build the kingdom, he's 
going to reward us. That's that's something he wants us to be doing. He loves it when we're serving him. You know, that's not the end all be all. That's not the goal. The goal is the relationship with him. But that's one of those byproduct things. And that's one of those things that he, you know, he loves to bless his children. You know, he wants to delight in us. He wants to be able, you know, have an excuse to give us things, you know, <laughs> um, because he's, because he finds joy in us, you know. And so teaching people to serve and, and get involved starts to transition them out of that receiving and into that giving. And when you can give the love of, you know, and, and love, more love and more grace can flow through you because that's the whole the whole thing. You know, if God's love and grace stops at you, he's not going to pour as much into you, you know, because you don't need it. But if you're if it's flowing out to others, he's going to continuously keep, you know, flowing through you. So, okay, so I think we're uh, getting close to the end of our time here. Uh, was is there anything you would like to add before we close out um, on on this day? And I, I do appreciate this conversation; it's been absolutely wonderful. Just to say that I appreciate your your heart in this, and and your desire to help people to be more in relationship than uh, than focused on religion. I you know I. Christianity is is the only religion, world religion in the world that 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 says that God doesn't want to just uh, take you uh, to a new place, but He wants to come to where you are and mm. and take you to where He wants you to be. That journey requires discipleship, and and so you know we don't elevate ourselves, as you've well said, uh, in that. We do believe in grace, but but also we believe that grace is an enabling grace. That that God calls us to uh, to lean into and to join in yeah. with what He wants to make us. So um, just pray your pray blessing on your podcast and and as you seek to help make disciples, may uh, may your tribe increase. Thank you very much. Yeah, and, and one of the things we talk about all the time is, is one, God doesn't want you to just pray and, and turn it over to Him and never do anything. He wants you to pray and then move. And then two, we're not meant to walk this journey alone. That we always say that you need to find other believers and you need to walk with Him. Christ sent His disciples out two by two for a reason. And when you're weak and you're down, you need somebody to help pick you up. So you have to have believers to walk with you. Yes. And if you do that, then you'll have way more success than you will if you try to do it all on your own. The enemy will have a harder time beating you down when there's somebody to pick you up. Amen to that. So thank you again. Uh, this has been a Veritas Resurgence broadcast. And today on The Voice Coming in the Wilderness, we've been talking with Dr. David Busick. Um, thank you very much for coming and speaking with us. And we look forward to what you're going to do here at this church this week. Please take a moment, if you would, to subscribe to our podcast. And don't forget to visit our new website at vrbroadcast.org, where you can find more teaching and ask questions of the show and our guest. Also, find us at Facebook on A Voice Calling in the Wilderness. And do us a favor, recommend this podcast to your friends and family. Again, thank you for listening, and have a blessed day. Mm-hmm.